Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you. First time for me. Uh, have any of you ever heard of Friends of Israel? Raise your hand if you heard of Friends. Okay, a few of you did. Uh, I brought a, our magazine, Israel My Glory, and if you're interested, as you walk in, uh, as you walk out, it will be on your left. There's a sign-up sheet. We'd love to give that to you at no cost. Uh, and if, for those who are might be listening, streaming, foi.org, foi.org, and you could sign up for the magazine, same offer to you. Well, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans, Romans chapter 9. And before we start, I'd like to tell you a story. You know, the Bible's a narrative, most of the Bible's a narrative, not all of it. But there are a lot of stories. People relate to stories. And as we go through this text, that's a lot of text to go through, Romans 9, 10, and 11. But as we go through it, I want you to think of, after I tell this story, think about it throughout the text, and I think it will help you. The story, I'm not sure is true. Um, I've heard that it might be, but it really doesn't matter if it is or not, because it's the content of the story that I know is true. And here's the way the story went. Uh, a church hired a pastor, pastor of a church, and the pastor came, and week after week, he would preach the gospel message. In fact, look, if you look behind me, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That, that's a great verse in Ephesians. This pastor preached the gospel message, and he said, unless you trust Christ as your Savior, you're going to go to hell. And week after week, he preached the same message. And when 18 months came, the chairman of the board, uh, many churches have a chairman of the board, many organizations have a chairman of the board, the chairman of the board came, fired, fired, the pastor. That was it. He was done. So they hired a new pastor. And this pastor preached the gospel message, the good news, but that unless you trust Jesus as your Savior, you are going to hell. 18 months came and went, and the pastor was still preaching. And so a congregant went to the chairman of the board and said, I don't understand it. You have to explain this to me. The first pastor, every week he told us we were going to hell unless we trusted Christ as our Savior, and you fired him. This pastor's been here the same amount, preaching the same message, and he's still on the platform. He's still preaching. Why is that? And so the chairman of the board stroked his chin, said, you know, you're right. The first pastor told us we were going to hell, and he sounded glad. The second pastor, who's still here, preaches the message, and it breaks his heart every time. I want you to think about that. We can be talking about the truth with an attitude that's less than stellar. We can tell the truth. But does it mean anything 
when we tell it. Uh, I happen to come from a Jewish background, and I want to show you some of the worship articles that Jewish people uh, have when, when they worship. And you know, to know when I traveled here, I, I come from over the river in Pennsylvania, and I traveled down 295 and uh, made a turn at Springside or Spring... Springdale. Springdale. That's right, Springdale. And um, I noticed not only was there a Jewish community center there, there were numerous uh, synagogues, uh, several of them, ranging to the uh, very liberal or reform side all the way to Chabad, which is ultra-Orthodox. So you get two Jewish people together, you're going to get three opinions, but I would, I would make the argument that if you get two Christians together, you'd get a lot of different opinions as well. So what I want to show you is, first of all, the kind of worship clothes that most Jewish people have when they go to synagogue. First of all, they, they wear one of these. Um, in Hebrew, it's called a kippah. In Yiddish, it's called a yarmulke. I call it a bald spot remover. It, 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 does, it does the job. Now, now, the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the church in Rome was not, as a Pharisee, before he was saved, probably was not wearing a yarmulke. Yarmulke didn't come into uh, worship in the Jewish community until around 500 or so AD. So um, the yarmulke is more recent in a long history. But it reminds the Jewish man who is overseeing his family, just as the scripture talks about, uh, he is to be reminded that God is above him. That don't be such a big shot, there's someone always above you. And then uh, there's the talit, or the prayer, prayer shawl, if you will. In Jesus' day, he would have worn an outer garment that had fringes. Uh, in fact, if when you read the Gospels, and the woman who had a problem with bleeding touched the hem of his garment, we believe she probably touched the tzitzit, or the fringes that hung uh, on the outer garment of every Jewish male uh, during that time. Today, you don't see Jewish men walking around with fringes unless you see the very ultra-Orthodox who is eh, probably, maybe not in the Cherry Hill area, but certainly if you're in New York or Israel, there many times you'll see the Jewish men, they have these fringes, one on each side, in the front, in the back, on both sides, four of them, to remind them of the uh, 613 mitzvot, or commandments. So a, a prayer shawl is worn. And so I want you to see what Paul is going to be describing in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it's important because in Romans 9, he talks about how it hurts his heart, how it breaks his heart. Just like we talked about that pastor who was fired because he sounded glad. Well, when we think of Romans, the book of Romans, the letter to the church at Rome, there's a few S's I want you to remember. He opens up uh, Romans with uh, the first S, the need for salvation, chapters 1, 2, and 3. But Paul gives the bad news first. 
I'm glad he does. There is bad news out there. Oh, boy, there's all kinds of bad news today. I mean, any news feed you have on your phone or computer, those of you old enough like me who have a newspaper and read the headlines, it's bad news. And Paul opens up the letter to the church at Rome with bad news. Salve, uh, you're sinner. All have sinned. We're all sinners. But then he gives good news that there's salvation. Uh, we're all sinners, but if we trust Jesus Christ, if we trust the Savior, uh, the Messiah of Israel, we will be saved. And so you have Romans uh, 1, 2, and 3, sin. Romans 4, 5, and 6, salvation. And then sanctification. We just sang a song about holy. Refiner, we've sang that refiner song about being holy. What does it mean to be holy? What did Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the vision? Holy, holy, holy. Holiness involves separation. You don't hear a lot about separation today in the church. Um, you read about it in the scriptures, but we don't talk about it. And so holiness involves being set apart. Um, back in the times of the temple, the utensils of the temple were set apart. The priests themselves were set apart. Holiness, being uh, separated. As we think of God, God is sanctified. That is, God is set apart from everyone. Uh, God is unique. He's one of a kind. And the absolute majesty of thinking about Jesus Christ, the second person in the Godhead, willingly coming to earth and be, as it were, corrupted by his very fallen creation. It never corrupted him where he sinned, but he lived amongst people who were corrupted with sin because he loves us. Uh, so we th think of sin, salvation, and sanctification. And at the end of chapter 8, I'd like you to look there. You're in chapter 9, I know. But I'd like to read the very last few verses of chapter 8 because it sets the plate for what we're going to look at. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, it says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Very good question. What could separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow! The end of chapter 8 is like the pinnacle of this book. He's just gone through eight chapters. He's talked about sin. He's talked about salvation. He's talked about after we're saved, we're sanctified, set apart. And he tells us that there's no power on earth once that happens for anyone or anything 
to separate us from the love of Christ. That is great news. Think about that. Paul, in in the pages of this letter, up until this point, talked about the things which I should do, I don't do, and the things that I don't do, I should do. Oh, wicked man that I am. He was writing as a believer. Frustration sometimes that we have. But still, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What a blessing. And now he comes to chapter 9. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 is really the hub, the central focus of this whole letter. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 speak to us about a topic that is very difficult for fallen man. That's you and me. Because chapter 9, 10, and 11 focus on God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God does what he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants, for whatever reason he wants. And that's hard for us sometimes. Why? We ask questions like why. Why did this have to happen? And there have been people who have said that they stopped believing in God because of events that took place and they couldn't justify or rectify in their mind how There is a God and this happens. And for them, that's it. Well, look what Paul says in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul has just given us the pinnacle, the mountaintop of the letter at the end of chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And he outlines that. But now he's saying, look, I just want you to know, I'm telling you the truth. And what I'm about to tell you is the absolute truth. I have great heaviness. My heart is broken. I look at my people. That's why I dress this way. Paul, they weren't necessarily dressed this way in Paul's day, but in 2022, I want you to see that I represent a people group, one people group, who are, as we'll learn in chapter 10, zealous without knowledge. That Paul is saying, I have heaviness for them. My heart breaks for them. Here's the question I have for you, and I'm taking it out of context, but it's an important question. What about the people around you? Now, certainly, uh, Crescent Bible Church is located uh, in a particularly Jewish area, but it doesn't matter what area you live in. Uh, Actually, your Jerusalem might not even involve anyone in this Jewish community. But I'll, I'll ask you the same question. Does your heart break for co-workers, family members, um, people who you live next to, who might not know the truth of the gospel? Paul says, I have great heaviness 
and continual sorrow in my heart. And then he says this, I could wish myself accursed. What's he mean by that? Well, after he just spoke in chapter 8, he's saying factually, doctrinally, there's no way once a person is in Christ, and this is we call it a doctrine of eternal security. That is, when a person genuinely, and really that person and God are the only two persons who know, but when a person genuinely receives Christ as their Savior, they are in Christ forever, and no power can take them out. And now Paul is saying, after just teaching that doctrine, He's saying, I could wish myself accursed. In other words, Paul is saying, if it were possible, I would trade places with my people. Now, I can't tell you I have that same heart that Paul does. One of the reasons I came to know Jesus Christ from a human standpoint, from my standpoint, is I read... Uh, prophecies from the prophet Isaiah, and I realized he was wounded for my tra- for his, he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I'm healed. I I received Christ for the benefit for the knowing him, so I knew I would be going to heaven. I would have eternal life. Paul is saying, I'd exchange that if it would mean his people's salvation. That is a heart that is breaking, that loves people. And he's going to go on to describe these people, and I think it's significant, because some Christians have trouble with the idea of God choosing. I can tell you, beyond doubt, God chose the Jewish people. That doesn't make us better than anybody else. It's just that he chose us. He's sovereign. He's going to go on to talk about just because we are the chosen people, the physical, ethnic group that God chose ultimately to bring the Messiah of Israel, but not only to bring the Messiah of Israel to his people, but ultimately to have a plan and purpose that would bring Gentiles to him as well. The Torah in Deuteronomy says that God chose us. That's interesting, that God chose us. I've had people ask the question, it's a good question, why did God choose the Jews? The best answer I have is to ask another question. Jesus did that all the time, by the way. Many questions came to him, and he used questions to answer them. And so, if you're wondering why God chose the Jewish people, and you're here, or listening, and know Jesus Christ, my question to you is, why did God choose you? As Christians, we believe that God chose each individual believer before the foundation of the earth. So, God chooses who he chooses. It says in verse 4, he's going to describe these people, the Jewish people, these chosen people, 
who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the services of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all. Now, when we talk about Christ, I hope you're not thinking, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, his mother was Mary Christ, and his father, his adopted father, was Joseph Christ. You know, the Christ family that lives down the street. You'll see Christ on their mailbox. Well, no, his name is Jesus, but his title is Christ, Christos. Messiah in English, Mashiach in Hebrew. He is Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. And the people that Paul writes about here in chapter 9, these are the people that he chose, and these particular things are unique and given by God to them. So, uh, the glory, the glory of God. The glory of God wasn't uh, given to the whole world. The glory of God is manifested on the earth, and the book of Exodus was given to the Israelites. It was the glory that led them through the wilderness. It was the glory that manifested himself in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. It was the cloud that manifested itself in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then in Ezekiel. It's the glory that departs from the temple. Ichabod, it says in Ezekiel chapters 9, 10, and 11 as the glory departs. It is the glory that manifested himself through the person of Christ in Matthew when we see that uh, he took uh, Peter, James, and John to a mountain and revealed his glory to them. The Shekan, the glory of God, that's uniquely given to the Jewish people. The covenants, the Abrahamic promise, was given. The land promise was given. The Davidic uh, promise was given. These are uniquely given to the Jewish people. But then he goes on in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God hath taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Wow, what does that mean? All that means is simply this. Yes, God chose a physical, literal people. But not every single person who was chosen corporately as part of a people group is individually going to believe in the living God. That goes back way before Jesus. I can tell you that Moses looked upon, in Exodus chapter 32, he looked upon his people after complaining in the, in the wilderness, all kinds of trouble, and he asked this question, all to Jewish people. Who is on the Lord's side? Who's on the Lord's side? Oh man, you would think, everybody would say, we all are. Look, we're redeemed, we were slaves, but now we're here. But he asked, who's on the Lord's side? And he asked them to come forward. There are 12 tribes of Israel. And on the day this great leader, Moses, who certainly Jewish people revere, I would say Christians do as well, this great Person, Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? Come this way. Twelve tribes. Only the tribe of Levi came forward. 
They're not all Israel who are of Israel. Throughout the history, Jewish history, of our people, only a remnant believe. That takes nothing away from the corporate promise that God has given to the nation of Israel. He promised them through Abraham uh, and through Isaac and through Jacob. In fact, he's going to talk about his sovereign choice of the nation. Look what it says in verse 8. They who are of the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At the time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. Okay, Abraham had more than one son, but he only had one promised son, Isaac. Well, then in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. You see, Isaac and Rebekah had two children, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest. That should have been the promised, the promises should have gone to him. But God didn't choose him. He chose Jacob. And before Esau could do anything good or anything bad. So if you're here and have trusted Christ, you ought to thank God and say, I am privileged. I am blessed. I have been given eternity. But don't puff out your chest. Look at me. No. Yes, you are part of the remnant. You are part of people who trusted Christ out of a great big world. But if you look behind me, it's by grace. It has nothing to do with, nothing we can do can earn merit. In the context here of the Jewish people who corporately are the chosen ones, they, the, the Messiah comes through, they have a future. That will, we read about it if you go further in the, the Bible and read from the book of Revelation. It's the Jewish nation that is going to be used to ultimately defeat the Antichrist. And when Jesus Christ returns, he's returning to his people. And that's what Paul is talking about here. God's sovereignty. He chooses whom he chooses. He will fulfill the promise that he gives no matter what. Well, it goes on in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That is a sovereign God. He chooses for his own benefit what he chooses to do. It's, it's hard sometimes for the fallen mind to understand, especially circumstances that might be going on right now. Whether that's economic, uh, emotional, psychological, whatever it is. God is on the throne. He oversees everything. And everything that happens doesn't surprise him. He's not up there saying, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. He knows about it. Look at verse 17. 
For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Now, I got to tell you, Paul chose Pharaoh here in Romans chapter 9. As he's writing about the Jewish people, he brings up Pharaoh, who in Egypt, during the time the Jewish people were slaves, Pharaoh's not a good person. It's not happy memories. And he says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose, I, this is God, raised thee up. So, I would never get political behind a pulpit. I would certainly try not to be political. But I can tell you that no matter what year I might be standing behind this pulpit here in the United States, currently we have President Joe Biden. Before that, we had President Trump. Before that, we had President Obama. Pick whoever you want. Whoever it would be is not there without the sovereignty of God. That's important. God here, Paul is saying, he raised up Pharaoh to get involved with his chosen people in a negative way from a human standpoint, but ultimately for God's purpose. So in Romans chapter 9, we have these great privileges that the Jewish people have. They alone were given all these various things, the covenants, the glory, the law, the service of God through the Levitical priesthood. They were raised up through the sovereignty of God. He could have chosen anyone, but he chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. The fourth son, Judah. It would be through Judah, sovereignly, that Jesus the Messiah would come. And so Romans chapter 9 is writing to the church at Rome and talking about God's sovereignty and here the privileges that the Jewish people have. But then go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. It's interesting that again, Paul emphasizes the people he's writing about of which he is one of them. He's Jewish himself. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Brethren, now he's writing to the church at Rome, Brothers, sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Again, I bring you back to that story. Whether true or not, the first pastor preached faithfully every week to congregants who were coming in, who some believed and some didn't, and told them, unless you believe, you're going to hell. And it came across as though he was glad to preach that message. And so the church got rid of him. But the next pastor who preached the same message but preached it with a broken heart. We could tell people facts. We can outline and get everything 100% accurate. What Paul is saying here, or what he's showing, not saying, is how it affects his heart. He cares about these people. He loves these people. And by the way, he was called not to the Jewish people, 
He was called to the Gentiles. We should care about all people. It should break our heart looking around and seeing the things we're seeing. Uh, and instead of a judgmental attitude, a higher attitude, we're not like that. We should have a broken heart and be praying for those people. He says in verse 2, I bear them witness. He's talking about his own people. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have zeal. Uh, during Paul's day, as in Jesus' day, there were Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. There were Sadducees. There were the priests, as the temple was still standing in Paul's day. Zeal? They have zeal, but without knowledge. And he writes in verse 3, for they being ignorant. You know, ignorant is not a bad term. It's not a derogatory term. If somebody says you're ignorant and they're accurate, it simply means you, didn't, you don't know. I'm ignorant about a lot of things. Uh, and then once you get informed, you're no longer ignorant. So they're ignorant. Paul says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. They don't know. And going about to establish their own righteousness. You know, that's not limited to the Jewish people. There's Gentiles who do the same thing. Uh, through all the various isms, there's certainly Judaism, but there's Protestantism, Catholicism, Mormonism, Hinduism. You name the ism, man has it, and many of these isms, if not all of them, all center around trying to do good, trying to do the right things, trying to be good, to justify to God to be accepted. And Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10, and here speaking in context about Judaism, for they being ignorant of God's righteous, righteousness, going about to establish their own, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So when you see a person who is worshiping, the positive aspect of that is they believe in God. They want to do right. They, they want to incorporate the heritage that they have. They want to be obedient to what the law says. But they're ignorant concerning a verse like this that was written to the church at Ephesus. They're ignorant concerning New Testament writing because they don't even believe, I didn't believe the New Testament was, was from God at all. And so Paul is saying they're ignorant. And then he says this in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. The law was given, Paul would write to the church uh, in, in the letter to, uh, of Galatians, that the law is our schoolmaster. That is, the law teaches us sin. How do we know what sin is? Well, in order to know what sin is, we have to know what doing right is. And that's what the law is about. 613 in the Torah, the first five books. Three, 613 mitzvot, commandments, that we're supposed to do. And once 
you read those and comprehend those, you now see God's standard. Oh, God's standard. I can tell you, before I got saved, I realized there was no, if this is God's standard and I believed it, I fell short. That's a good thing. I was frustrated. How could I reach a holy God? I can't do these things. Oh, that's good you know that. That's why it's called good news. Somebody gave me the good news. The good news is you're frustrated. You can't do it. There's not a human being on the planet who could do this. The good news is you don't have to. One person fulfilled it all, completed it all. He was the giver of it to begin with. He's the Messiah, the Mashiach. And if you go to verse 14, because we don't have time to read every verse, how are people going to know? How did I know? How did, how did I find out? I was ignorant. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? He goes on to say in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings. I'm not really interested in looking at your feet at all. You don't want to see mine either. But I got to tell you, if you're reaching out to your neighbors or friends, your feet are beautiful, even if they're physically ugly. They are reaching out. They are propelling you to go. And Paul is saying, look, they're ignorant. Well, how are they going to know? Well, somebody's got to tell them. And that's what chapter 10 is about. Chapter 10 is telling us that uh, there, while there's great privilege uh, in chapter 9, there's problems in chapter 10, and somebody's got to tell them how to solve that problem. And then in chapter 11, Paul writes this. I say then, has God cast away his people? Oh, I can tell you today there are people who think God is finished with Israel. That God's done with them. They were the Christ killers. I've heard that term to describe the Jewish people. Oh, you're the Christ killers. Paul says... Has God cast them away, as some people believe? Paul asks, is that true? And then he answers his own question. No way. No how. God forbid. May it never be. Don't think such a thought. And then he's going to outline in chapter 11 to demonstrate why that's simply not true. Oh, did the Jewish people say crucify him? Yes, yes we did. Uh, I don't know if there's any Italians. Any Italians here? Okay, we don't have any Italians. But I usually ask that question, somebody raises their hand, I said, has anybody ever accused you of being a Christ killer? Well, every single time they say no. Well, guess who did it? The Romans. They crucified him. Oh, the Jewish people said crucify him. The Romans did it. And then invariably somebody will either be thinking or tell me after a message and they'll say, you know, I killed Christ. My sins put him on the cross. That's true. But it's not 100% true. Uh, 
true. You see, it was the Jewish people that said crucify him. It was the Romans who put him on the cross. It is my sin that put him there. But we need to remember that Jesus Christ came because the triune God in eternity past, whenever that is, agreed that the second person in the Godhead was going to come down on the earth and accomplish redemption. He came. It's his purpose. And if he didn't want to come, you wouldn't have been able to blame anybody. It wouldn't have happened. And so Paul gives first himself as an example and shares his testimony uh, and his background. And then he gives Elijah as a background. Elijah, I call him the prophet of chutzpah. Now, chutzpah is a Yiddish word. And you're, it's good that you're all way behind, sit, seated in the back. Must be a tradition here at the church that the first five rows are no good. They're filled with, <laughs> filled with disease. And so you're staying back there where it's clean and uh, no chance of illness. But it's good in this sense because if I say chutzpah with a ch, then nobody gets spit upon. <laughs> chutzpah means guts or gall or nerve. And when we look at the story of Elijah, Elijah was one man against 450 prophets of Baal. And there was a contest. You probably are familiar with the story. And these 450 prophets of Baal, there's this contest, and Elijah says, you go first, you get you know, your uh, offerings, and, and you offer them to, uh, to uh, your God. You set this thing here, and if it burns up, you're right, and if mine burns up, then I'm right. Well, they go first, nothing happens. And so he has chutzpah. He says, well, maybe you're offering there on that little altar... Uh, maybe your, your, your God's asleep. Maybe he's taking a siesta. Uh, you know, why don't you beat yourselves and call upon him to wake them up? And that's what they did. They started beating each other until they bled. Nothing happened, then he's up. Man, I'll tell you, if I was Elijah, I would have been praying like crazy. But he didn't do that. He said, you know, it's not really fair. Before I call on the living God... I want some water to be put on this altar till it overflows. That's chutzpah, folks. That's chutzpah. He calls upon the living God and it's taken up. But then Elijah flees. It's interesting. 450 men he had no issue with. He had chutzpah. One woman I'm not making any commentary other than one woman, her name was Jezebel, he ran. The text tells us he ran. And he cries out to God, I'm the only one who has not bowed the knee to Baal. He wasn't the only one. There weren't a lot. There's only a remnant. But God told him there are 6,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul uses him as an example as well, to talk about the fact that God has not rejected his people. There's always been a remnant of people who believe. I'm a remnant uh, of Jewish people during this time. During the tribulation period, there'll be 144,002, and there'll be a remnant. Until the end where Paul talks, and because of time, let's just go quickly to verse 25. 
For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is a previously hidden truth that's now going to be revealed. Of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part, that's not the mystery. Blindness in part amongst Jewish people has been going on through history. has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There's blindness in part that will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then he says in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. I can fast forward to some time, I don't know when, the rapture of the church will take place, the church will be gone, God is going to raise up a person who will be anti-Christ who will sign a covenant with the Jewish people and unleash the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. And for seven years, terrible things. You can read about them in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Terrible things will happen. And at the end of that period of time, the text tells us in Zechariah, they will, they will look upon him whom they pierced speaking of the Jewish people, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, an only child. They will know. The scripture says all Israel, that's what Paul says, all Israel will be saved. That, that period of time comes in Romans chapter 19 when Jesus Christ returns to the earth in power and glory. What a blessing that will be. So, so what? That's what, we're going to close with this. So what? I've given you Romans 9, 10, and 11 quickly. And so you say, I'm not Jewish. This doesn't, this doesn't matter to me. Might be true. Except for this. You see, God gave special promises to these people. He chose them. He selected them. He carved them out for a plan and purpose. Not only, but certainly importantly, that Jesus is Jewish. And he's the Jewish Messiah. And we know that he's coming back. But the question is, how do I know that God keeps his promise? He gave you a promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But you see, if God forsakes his people, if he forsakes his people, that means he's a promise breaker. And if God breaks his promise to the Jewish people, any promise he gives to you is in jeopardy. Wait a minute. If he, if he rejects them, he could reject me. That's exactly right. I'm telling you to pay attention to these three chapters. Because if God is faithful, if God does accomplish his purpose, if what he says he will do and he will keep it, then that should put a smile on your face. Oh, if God is faithful to the Jewish people... He'll be faithful to me. He'll, he'll do what he said for me. I hope I have your attention. God certainly has mine. That is a great a blessing as you can have. A promise-keeping God. That's the God I worship. Is it the God you worship?